Okay. Okay. Holy fuck. I know what that title says, and it's scary, but don't worry. I'm not going to reveal that I've been a secret racist the whole time. We've touched on race a few other times over the course of the Way to Have family of shows, but we've never actually talked about the problems surrounding it. And no problem is nearly as obvious and seemingly controversial somehow as anything involving white people including things no one wants our opinions on, but we still feel the need to involve ourselves in. But why? Why are we so self-important? And, more importantly than that, are white people even real? This episode on Why Aren't You Talking About This. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wait At. Hold on, let me adjust my shit. Alright, uh, we are back again with another episode I have no business including myself in, which is actually maybe a bit more true than you might recognize this time. Regardless, it means the world to have my voice pumping into your ears and slowly turning you gay. And yes, I do have binaural beats during the entire show doing exactly that. I also have a sissy hypno locked behind my Patreon paywall. They haven't listened to enough episodes to unlock yet. Uh, that would be episode 40, by the way. Speaking of which, episode 20 is literally two episodes away, and we're looking down the barrel of that one coming out hopefully early October. And who would guess I was wrong when I said November or one year? I mean, fuck me, right? But speaking of which, the one year is also coming up soonish. Uh, not that I'm really going to do anything for that. I, oh man, I don't have much time. Uh, <laughs> that's not, that shouldn't be a concerning thing. I just, I have a lot of work all the time. Uh, anyways, also make sure to download and stream the show, like and leave a review, and anything else you can do on your platform of choice to help the show grow. Uh, it means the world to me. Also, your show will grow, if you know what I mean. Uh, but also, make sure to spread the show around to people in public, including friends and family, obviously, but also shout about the show in strangers' faces like a crazy person. I mean, fuck it, right? Okay, let's stop stalling and just talk about race. Alright, so, unlike other episodes, this one is actually going to need some explaining. So, this episode is on white supremacy. But really, in order to talk about that, we also need to talk about race. But I hesitate to call this the race episode because, holy fuck, that makes me shaking my boots I don't wear just thinking about my silly-ass show getting attention for that, of all things. So, yes, this episode's point is to call white supremacy dumb and say things that might make Ghost Club put tiki torches and burning crosses in my yard. But in order to do that, 
and make sure everyone's laughing along and not screaming at me, I have to explain what race is. So let's take it from the top and start with white supremacy. Basically, white supremacy is a belief that white people are a superior race and should therefore dominate society, usually to the exclusion or detriment of others. Which, that sounds like a no-shit definition. It's literally the two words that you said. But, trust me, like a lot of things, learning more makes this definition much more confusing. Now, tacked onto this like a parasite on a parasite, is white nationalism, which merges this idea with nationalism to say that this is a nation of white people and that we should take it back to being a nation of white people. Yikes, right? Well, while not only are they wrong, but also stupid, they do hold a considerable amount of power, regardless of how much they whine and bitch they don't and they wish they had more, which is why you never give a white supremacist a cookie. But before I get into a tangent about what acts of violence we should commit against Nazis that would make a single tear roll down Stalin's face in pride, let's ask what race even is. See, a race is a group of people with shared social and physical qualities viewed as a distinct group and type of human. Does that sound vague? Well, it should, because it is. But in general, races can be defined in a lot of ways. In the U.S. and in a lot of the Western world, it's often physical traits like skin color, hair texture, and facial features in combination with a general cultural vibe. You know, like white people often have pale skin, straight hair, uh, high-ish cheekbones combined with a love of mayonnaise and general awkwardness around people of other races because we really want them to know we aren't racist, but we also have no idea how to talk to people that aren't white. Now, race can also be defined by linguistic lines like... Arabic, or along religious lines like Jewish, or thereby an ethnic or national group like the Slavs, the Irish, and the French. And again, if it sounds vague, it's because it is. And because of that, the range of races are somewhere between 3 and fucking 60. But the thing is, and the very important thing to remember, is that modern science has entirely disproved the idea of a biological race, putting it squarely in the social construct arena alongside gender, clothing, and being forced to wipe your asshole with toilet paper instead of your greasy Cheeto hands like God intended. Born to shit, forced to wipe. And how'd they do this? Well, they began to examine the genetic profile of different races and found that, at most... Two populations of humans have 8% genetic difference, which would be similar to, if not literally, two people from geographically separated parts of the world on entirely opposite sides of the planet that haven't had contact with other humans for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And most people have, at most, 1% genetic difference between themselves and people of other races. You know, like, for example, a white dude from Tennessee and a black woman from Alabama probably have, like, maybe, at most, a 1.3% genetic difference. Well, the people he idolizes, the Norse, are, like, maybe 1.7% different. Which is so small that it basically doesn't matter. I just want to give you the tools to flex on some racists. Oh, also, I should probably note, uh, I think the current understanding of the amount of genes that a human, ha- that a human has is, um, 
this is not in my script. I just thought about this. Uh, up to 25,000 genes. So we're talking about, like, a couple. Uh, anyways. Now, also, a very important thing to know is a racial worldview, which is the idea of the human races that, you know, as we literally just said, have a source of, I made it the fuck up, are an actual thing that we should base opinions off of. Which was particularly common within the 18th to 20th centuries, and heavily influenced the intellectuals of the time, including newly founded institutions with European intellectuals in places of the world that were rapidly developing. And if you're aware of history, there's a lot of places that fit that bill, but one of them loves bald eagles, bald men, and bald vulvas. That's right, the United Goddamn States of America. But what makes up a racial worldview? Well, I'm glad you asked, person I made up entirely for that question. You may stop existing now. First, the idea that all people can be divided into biologically separate and mutually exclusive populations called race. So, we're off to a great start here. Second, that your phenotypical features, like face shape and skin color, are the markers and symbols of racial identity. Third, that each race has distinct and exclusive qualities of temperament, morality, disposition, and intelligence. Like, if you want to racially divide white, you'd say that Gaelic people are noble savages that love drinking, while Germanic people are noble barbarians that love drinking, and the Norse people are noble savage barbarians that love drinking, and also boats. Fourth, that all races are unequal and can be ranked on a gradient of inferiority to superiority, which, hint hint, most Europeans put their particular flavor of white on the top. Fifth is that all the traits from two and three are entirely innate, and unalterable. And finally, that every race should keep themselves and be segregated in their own communities. And hopefully, with just thinking like the tiniest amount, you can see why every point has more problems per square inch than a construction company operate entirely by child slavery. I mean, morally, logistically, and performatively. I really gotta think about like. Obviously, obviously, it's morally wrong to have child slavery, but also, like, how can their tiny fucking hands build a bridge? Anyways, something closely and obviously tied to it, and also with the same issues per square inch, is racism. Now, racism is a prejudice, discrimination, and antagonism directed by an individual, community, or institution against people on the basis of being a member of a certain ethnicity or race, especially marginalized ones. The other definition of race is that it's the belief that different races have different characteristics and qualities that make them inferior or superior to each other. Now, where does this come from? And the short answer is that human brains suck shit. Basically, the human brain is a pattern recognition and learning machine. When it comes to telling the difference between the red berries with black spots that make you shit until you die, and the black berries with red spots that make you have rolling orgasms, and teaching other people the difference. It's good. The problem is that the human brain doesn't distinguish between objective things, like berries or not approaching a bear, and socially constructed things, like race. Which means, when some asshole wants to find a group of people to enslave, murder, or scapegoat, 
they can use this thing the human brain does to make up a set of human traits and behaviors their culture doesn't like and attribute it to that group. And if people believe them, then these people will hyperfixate on this pattern and their brains will begin to look to support the pattern with quote-unquote evidence. And there you go. You have a racism. So basically... Racism is a learned behavior taught by people who have racist thoughts, actions, or ideas, which can include implied patterns. Like, in TV, it's a racist shorthand having the number one job for black and Latino actors being gang members. And and white people have historically turned this from a weird thing our brains do that has been doing for millennia to justify doing horrific shit to each other into a mass-produced factory of fuckery. Speaking of which, white people. White people are people of European ancestry when put in the most simple terms. But white doesn't exactly just match that. Because it's usually used in reference to Western Europeans, but it's also used in a lot of other categorizations. You know, like including North Africa, West Asia, the Mediterranean, and Russia or excluding everyone but one particular ethnicity. So then, what exactly is whiteness? Well, I mean, that depends on the place. But the unique thing about whiteness is its power dynamic. See, because Europeans have dominated much of the world for centuries, whiteness in largely white or white-dominated cultures have normalized white to the point where it just means human, and everyone else is human plus or minus. Usually minus. But this means that white people in these areas don't have to think about race while everyone else does. And the powers that be and institutions are built upon both racism and racial worldviews in these places, which oppresses and often actively hunts or attacks their minority populations. And what places are like this, you might ask? Well, for example, America. Which leads us to discussing three things that get conservatives, the uninformed, and the most annoying leftists you've ever seen, uh, get in a little pissy cum pants fit. Microaggressions, white privilege, and white fragility. And if you're one of those three groups of people who's having a shit fit right now, first of all, don't come, you fucking weirdo. Also, calm down and fucking listen and let the words hit your brain. Okay, so microaggressions, in general, is a verbal, nonverbal, or environmental slight, snub, or insult which communicates something hostile, derogatory, or harmful to a particular group. Uh, Whether or not they're intentional, they do essentially say that someone is unwelcome or not valuable. You know, it's like making a bunch of posters to hang up in your restaurant making fun of micropenises. Like, sure, you aren't actively panting people and laughing at their tiny dick, but they certainly feel unwelcome. But in racial terms, it would include things like racist language, things that are very well known to have racist implications, and also things that are trying to be helpful, like trying to make black people feel welcome in your establishment by playing easy. I mean, yes, you're trying to be helpful, but it's clear you don't understand, and you're doing it entirely wrong, and you're still being racist. White privilege is the idea that since whiteness and white people hold a special place in the eyes of political, institutional, and economic powers in the U.S., and also make up the majority of its membership, 
that white people innately receive certain privileges and benefits others don't. And I will admit, this is a hard one to accept. Especially if you're like someone who like Theo Vaughn, and this isn't hate or a call out, by the way. I actually like his comedy. Uh, who grew up poor and in an area where you grew up as the minority. However, this privilege isn't necessarily something like living a middle-class lifestyle, being free of trauma, or getting your way more often than you don't. Which is the misconception, and is something that a lot of my fellow lefties don't try to explain. Having white privilege doesn't delegitimize your own traumas and experiences. You can still be oppressed or victimized by your class, faith, gender, sex, sexual orientation, dick size, height, weight, moisture of your holes, etc., but you aren't a victim of systematic racism. Now, having white privilege is also not something to be ashamed of, because you also didn't have a choice in receiving it, despite what some of my fellow lefties might say. If you know about it, though, it does become your responsibility to use it to be a positive change in the world. Or, not even necessarily a change, just to use it in a positive, constructive way. You know, like my personal white privilege is having good interactions with cops almost across the board. And this is something that even other white people I've been around don't have, but I do also have the benefit of being a soft-looking, fat, white male, so I'm getting a whole matrix of privileges. But, you know, there are other examples. You know, like, like if you're able to be in the company of just white people if you really wanted to, or you can avoid being around races you've been trained to mistrust. Or if you can get a job or a place to live with people that will immediately dislike you without being white-coated. Uh, if you can go places without people assuming you're a criminal or a troublemaker. Or you can have your voice heard. I mean, even the ability to ignore people of other races in the same group if you wanted to. And you can find representation in media and American history that you can relate to or find people truly and wholeheartedly believing that your race exists. All of these are a kind of privilege, which again, nothing to be ashamed of if you aren't being an asshole about it. And, by the way, if someone says something and your instant response is a smarmy, uh, honey, that's a white privilege, you're part of the problem. You're a dick. A better way to do that is to explain what the fuck that means in this context instead of just saying white privilege so that that person doesn't then hold it in their head that you're an asshole. <sighs> okay. And finally is white fragility. In simplest terms, this is being unable to handle much, if any mention of race or any kind of racial stress. And this is particularly common for white people because we have the luxury of not thinking about our race. So our brain hasn't been trained in how to deal with someone attacking us in this way, or making broad generalizations about our race. Which means for some people, even so much as saying, hey, white supremacy is pretty bad, can get their testicles torsioned because they're assuming that any attack on whiteness, for any reason, is an attack on them specifically. Which usually derails any attempt to deal with race issues, because the token white is having a panic attack about the implications that wokeism is trying to hurt them, and they feel betrayed because they thought everyone liked white people. And why doesn't this usually happen with other races? Well, because they're bombarded basically constantly with some reminder that they're different and don't belong and they suck and they aren't American. They're something hyphen American, 
and therefore, they know when people say something racist, they mean them personally. Which also usually isn't the case for white people, by the way, because white people are seen as, like, the quote-unquote normal human in the U.S. Instead, usually when someone says, wow, white people suck, they aren't talking about you. They're talking about the government, the church, the bank, the housing market, the economy, clan members, Karens, meth heads, people who live to pickups, MAGA voters, or 13-year-old white suburban kids thinking they're working class. And if you're all of those things, I'm honestly kind of surprised Steven Crowder made it this far. I mean, especially after I talked about micropenises, I would think that he would be really insulted by that and, and stop listening. Okay, so now that we've gone over just about four pages of background information, of background information you need to know to understand what race even is, let's get back to talking about white supremacy. So, white supremacy in the United States is in a weird place. Because we have a ton of white supremacy in this country, and a lot of it is baked into the culture. So you'd think it would be out in the open, right? Well, not really. See, for people trained to see it, like, you know, white people that say humanities in college, or anyone of any other race as above the age of seven, it's obvious. But it's also not visible for the other white people. And if that group of white people got pissed about it, the government would have to do something about it. So at the government level, the white supremacy is dog-whistled. But also at the individual level, because most people who aren't white supremacists hate white supremacists, even if they otherwise subscribe to the same ideals, white supremacists individually also have to tone it down or hide it in plain sight. So what are these dog whistles? Well, in politics and a lot of the powers that be, there are a few that jump out. Those being saying Western civilization or the West, uh, Christian, urban, or the concept of the nuclear family. And the West literally just means white people, because Western civilization covers basically North America and some amount of Europe, usually centered around Northern Europe, which is predominantly white. Christian also just means white because the two are interchangeable in the U.S., because holy fuck are we fucked up in a lot of different ways. But also, nuclear family and the traditional family are used to mean not just white people, but more specifically, conservatives dick-sucking the 1950s. And by that, I mean all of the 1950s, including the racism. And the other reason is because uh, a lot of white people in the 1950s fled to suburbia to avoid uh, being around people of other races. So when they say the nuclear family, they're talking about when white people went to suburbia and were able to have enough room to have a family. Okay, but finally, urban and words similar that are meant to draw attention to being in the city or urban areas or in something like a prison system or to draw attention to social assistance all means whatever ethnicity they don't like. Usually all of them that you can't lose in a snowbank. Like, uh, the, the common one that I hear around where I live is talking about people on welfare. Um... Where I live, that doesn't usually mean black, that usually means Hispanic. Because, for some fucking reason, people in poor, rural Oregon think that it's uh, Hispanic people that are on welfare, and not all of the fucking white people with 18 goddamn rusted cars in their front yard and no job. 
motherfuckers. Oh, and also, I'd be remiss if I didn't include anything that either implies or says backwards or savage, especially in relation to non-Western European countries. That is a huge dog whistle. Okay. And the list of white supremacist symbolism for individual white supremacists or hate groups, and oh man, this is a big one. So, begin with all the Nazi shit that's obvious. Yeah, the swastika, Iron Cross, the symbol of the... <sighs> Sturmel... Oh, motherfucker. Uh, the, the fucking A symbol that looks like something the evil Avengers would use has the uh, lightning bolts in it. Uh, because that was the military police that did, like, the house-to-house, like, gun people down shit. Uh, the very famous SS lightning bolts, or the distinctive Totenkopf, uh, which is a death skull, uh, which is just a slightly sideways skull with crossbones and 20 teeth. Uh, all of those details are very important. It has more or less than 20 teeth. It's someone that accidentally made a Totenkopf. Um... If it's straight on, it's not white supremacist. It is always white supremacist if it's surrounded by a circle, but the circle has, like, real rough edges. Um, that's, that's like, a common indicator. Um, but all of those are Nazi symbols that have been used since the fall of the Nazis by white supremacists. Now, related to this are symbols like the Triskiel, Sonnenrod, and the arrow cross that are all stand-ins for the swastika. Of course, we also have the use of Roman symbols, like SPQR being used sometimes, uh, being the abbreviation of the phrase Senatus Populus K Romanus, or the Senate and the people of Rome, and the Roman Imperial Eagle, because the Romans were kind of, sort of, absolutely ethno-fascist, and are also a common culture stolen from by white supremacists. And now we have symbols that we need to explain more. And in particular, the use of runes and religious symbols. So things like the Christian or Celtic cross are often co-opted by white supremacists, which is a legit religious symbol I mean, used by a lot of Christians. And the Celtic cross is used by British denominations of Christians and also some places descended from uh, British, Irish, Scottish and Welsh uh, Christians. But it was also co-opted by the Nazis in Norway as their primary symbol. It was also taken up by the Klan to represent white Christian heritage because it's used in Northern Europe. Runes, much to the annoyance and anger of pagans and medievalists everywhere. By the way, uh, how about we all team up and kick the ever-loving shit out of white supremacists until they stop using our fucking runes? Maybe, maybe we do that. How would, how you guys think about that? Um, but, oh my god, I'm so fucking mad. Um, but these symbols have been co-opted by white supremacists because they idolized the Norse and Vikings. Which is also dumb, because the Norse and Vikings weren't white supremacists. And you can clearly see that in the fact that they traded all across the fucking globe, and also they fucking took wives from other cultures, Sometimes, like, Norse women would marry people from other cultures, too. It's not just, like, fucking stealing their fucking women like a... You fucking barbarians. Okay. Anyway. Oof. Anyways. The most common two to be stolen 
are the Valnoth and the Othala, which, in addition to being used as swastika stand-ins, have their own meanings. The Valnoth, or Knot of the Slain, are three intertwined triangles that are supposed to represent the three possible afterlives that you go to in Norse mythology, and it represents a willingness to die in battle. Which, I know it's getting on my soapbox a little bit early, but to me, just means that if you see one of these at a neo-Nazi rally and you want to get violent, uh, kill the one with the Valknot first. Uh, they said they'd do it. Oh, fuck. Okay, anyways, the Othala rune has also been used by neo-Nazis, and that is just the rune that means heritage. I, I really fucking hate that like, it, I fucking hate. Why is it that the shit that I like, like, the, the fucking, the, like, all the witchy shit, why is all the witchy shit and, like, the medieval stuff being stolen by the goddamn white supremacists and fascists? Huh? Why, why did you have to pick these things? Motherfuckers, what? Stick with the Nazi shit. That way we know who you fucking are. Stop stealing our shit. Oh my god. Okay. Alright. Uh, so the other ones are going to take a little bit of explaining as well. And those being the phrase blood and soil, the blood drops, and basically all of the numerology stuff that they're so in love with. So... Blood and soil is a slogan that means that the soil of America is protected by white blood, and the only real Americans are the pale ones. And, again, if you see this one, aim for the face. Uh, a blood drop, originally used by the KKK, is a symbol used to reassure your other dumbass white supremacist friends that, yes, this Celtic cross is meant in the racist way. And if you see a single blood drop on basically any traditionalist European symbol or a set of numbers, it's fucking racist. And this, again, represents purity of blood, or alternatively, a willingness to bleed for their beliefs. And you know what to do with that one. Okay, and the other one being numerology. Races fucking love numbers. It's like one of their three favorite things, besides uh, pretending that the reason why that their life sucks and their wife left them is because black people exist, and also pretending that... Uh, anyone wants to willingly have sex with them for any amount of time. Um, but you can see this in stuff like 1352, 88, 9%, 1312, 311, 14, shit like that. So things like 1352 are in reference to the idea that 13% of the population, they mean black people, commit 52% of the crime, which straight up isn't true. Uh, 88 is Hail Hitler, uh, 311 is KKK, uh, 1312 is a cab, you know, shit like that. Um, and the 9% is based on the thought that 9% of the world is white. And finally, 14 is a reference to the 14 words, which I'm not going to read out loud because holy shit, I don't want that on the internet. I already said the HH words. Um, but it's a common white supremacist phrase. And also the, the other ones I, I want to cover real quick are jokes that became legit things. So, like, the okay hand signal is something that 4chan jokingly spread around as white supremacist, and then when the news picked up on that, a bunch of white supremacists started doing it to make fun of them, and then it actually became a white supremacist symbol. 
It's fucking great. Uh, the other one is the Flag of Kekistan, which is also a 4chan joke that eventually became a legit thing because it was based off the Nazi flag, and white supremacists uh, saw the similarities and decided they liked it. Okay, but holy fuck, that's a lot of info. So, you know what? You don't get a break yet. We have a lot more information to go over in the history section, so prepare your, uh, your brain pussy. Your pussy, if you will. Okay, so to start off with the ancient classical world, all across ancient civilization, a lot of people didn't particularly care about your appearances. Rather, they would see their people as the people they grew up around or adapted their cultural norms or whose cultural norms they adapted into. I mean, for example, the ancient Egyptians, and yes, you can't escape me talking about the ancient Egyptians, did depict different ethnicities and skin tones, even noting a difference between the Egyptians, Nubians, Asians, uh, Canaanite, and Lebanites at the time that weren't necessarily talking to people from China, um, and Libyans, but didn't particularly care. And they cared more about your homeland and who your family was than they did how you looked. Or in the Rigveda, around 1500 to 1000 BC, similar to a lot of other faiths at the time, having a dichotomy of skin colors between white and black was pretty common. However, this wasn't a literal difference it was instead a metaphor for your faith, with being faithful being likened to having white skin, and being irreligious being seen as having black skin, or likened to having black skin. However, this was actually rooted in some kind of questionably racist beliefs at the time. See, across the ancient world, but especially in the Mediterranean, a lot of cultures had a focus on women being pale and men being tan, which had a lot of uh, gender connotations with your skin tone, which... If you know the ancient Greeks, that should be causing the uh-oh alarms to go off. But if not, here's this Aristotle quote. Quote, Those whose skin is too dark are cowardly. Witness Egyptians and the Ethiopians. Those whose skin is too light are equally cowards. Witness women. The skin color, typical of the courageous, shall be halfway between the two. End quote. Yeah, that also made me cackle the first time I saw it because... It took me by such surprise when he said, Witness, women. Uh, uh, but anyways, this means that men with pale skin in ancient Greece were cons- were seen as effeminate, which didn't necessarily have the connotation of gay, because ancient Greece, but it did make the common connotation of being a bottom. And not a power bottom either, like a, a bottom bottom. Uh, which in ancient Greece, if you know them, that was, that was some fucking fighting uh, you, you, ancient Greece, a, a real man's man was having gay sex, but he was always the one, the one plugging. Uh, uh, all this being said, however, these cultures didn't necessarily connect skin tone to race, and instead to lifestyle and homeland. But this isn't to say everything's happy in Kumbaya, because during the classical period, things like hair texture and eye color were being associated with morality and psychology. So, for example, if in Han China, for example, if you're born with green eyes, that might mean that you're a fucking savage, but at the same time, if you're from a notable family, you'd be considered a quote-unquote good savage. Which, if that sounds familiar... Okay, but, you know, let's get to an actual date. So, during the lifespan of Hippocrates, between 460 and 370 B.C., he spoke on the question of differences of human phenotypes, like a lot of other thinkers of his day. 
And Hippocrates actually categorized different climates and what he thought their connotations were. So, for example, he saw people from temperate climates, like much of Europe, as being sluggish and not apt to hard work. Uh, he saw people from extreme climates, like deserts and extreme cold, as being sharp, industrious, and vigilant. And he saw people from flat, windy, and well-watered places, basically places that have a lot of rain, as unmanly and gentle. It's fucking funny. Oh, uh, did, did none of those sound like Greece? Well... Here's what he said about rugged, elevated, and well-watered places. That this is where the people that are enterprising or in, and warlike come from. Which are two things that the ancient Greeks saw as good things. So, surprise, surprise, he said the ancient Greeks are the best. In a similar vein, uh, in 361 to 363 AD, during the rule of Emperor Julian of Rome, which, I mean, come on, Caesar, that's not clever, we know it's you. He said... Quote, come tell me why it is that the Celts and the Germans are fierce, why the Hellens and Romans are, generally speaking, inclined to political life and humane, though at the same time unyielding and warlike, why the Egyptians are more intelligent and more given to crafts, and the Syrians unwarlike and effeminate, but at the same time intelligent, hot-tempered, vain, and quick to learn. For if there is anyone who does not discern a reason for these differences among the nations, but rather declaims that all this so befell spontaneously, how, I ask, can he still believe that the universe is administered by a providence? Which, funnily enough, if I'm interpreting this right, isn't super racist? Like, he's basically saying, like, hey, dummy, we're different for a reason that isn't just scythings be like, and if you can't name it, shut the fuck up. Which, I mean, is the kind of woke of, like, well, Grandpa doesn't get it, but his heart's in the right place. You know? Like, that's the vibe I'm getting off of it. Uh, but, with that, we're in the ADs, so that means it's time for the Middle Ages, uh, when classical ideas like this merge with a combination of things. Specifically, the hierarchy of life, and the concept that humanity descended from the three sons of Noah. Those being the Semitic, or Asian, Hamitic, or African, and the, and the Japhetic, or Indo-European. Which, this one in particular has a lot of what we call nowadays a racism, because Ham, if you're familiar with the Bible, is cursed, as well as his bloodline. Which is why, according to a lot of people in the Middle Ages, that black people were black. Yikes! And making this worse, by the 7th century, slavery begins to gain strength in the Islamic world, and a lot of black Africans are the victim of it and the target, which changes the narrative of Ham to include slavery as being part of the curse, because, surprise, surprise, most people, when they see what slavery looks like, are disgusted, and you need to morally justify it to get people on board. Fucking wild, isn't it? This period is also when the idea of a hierarchy of life begins to subdivide. Because, see, the idea of the great chain of being goes in order minerals, plants, animals, humans, angels, and God. But this begins to subdivide between you know, what plants and animals are better and closer to humans and also closer to God. And, of course, this quickly became applied to humans as well. And this is what we call a racism. However, by the 9th century, these ideas start getting some pushback. Like from the Afro-Arab Islamic philosopher Al-Yahiz. I, I feel like I got way closer to that one 
that I've gotten in a long time, which tells me I got it as wrong as I could possibly get it. But anyways, he argues that your skin color comes from your environment and not your Abrahamic heritage, which, yeah. Also in the 14th century, a sociologist named Ibn Khaldun dispels the idea of skin color being tied to innate moral character or a curse from God and is, and is instead from the temperature of your environment. And again, not entirely off from what we understand today. Which, by the way, let me say real quick. From what we understand, skin color is determined by melanin, which your body uses to protect from UV light. Which, if your ancestor is from an area that had a lot of sunlight and therefore heat, your skin will be darker because humans adapted to that region and you carry those adaptations for millennia. So, while they don't really have that kind of science yet, I mean, they're, they're on the right track. I mean, they're pretty close to the right answer. But, of course, in come the Europeans. However, not necessarily with a dismissal like you might imagine. Instead, by the late 16th century, Europeans begin to debate Ibn Khaldun's ideas. Some, like Georgius Hornius, with that his real fucking name, argued that skin color was an inherited trait, while others, like Francois Bournier, argued that skin color was mostly caused by your environment. However, not everything was a friendly and not too terribly racist debate. This is also the origin of scientific racism, which is an attempt to explain our racist bullshit with biology. When race changes from a term for your close kin and relatives to the idea of a shared heritage based on phenotype. And this is also when white is created as a classification for Europeans, and into the 17th century, Bernhard Verin and John Ray attempt to find a way to biologically classify human populations into different races by certain factors. Those being stature, shape, whatever the fuck that means, food habits, skin color, and other distinguishing features. Which if you're thinking, wow, those are some really variable things, even within the same population, then boom, you are on the right track. Oh, and also that Francois Bernier guy from earlier develops a classifications of humans into four distinct races based off the four quadrants of the world. Those being European, Far Eastern, Black, and I am not saying the word that he used, holy shit, and lap. And I hesitate, I, I hesitated to write that one, because in some places that's an offensive term, like that's a, a racist term to say, but I, like it, it's in very specific parts of the world, America isn't one of them, I apologize, I... And, like, it, it's, it's a difficult area to simplify because it's kind of like everyone north of England, but also everyone from very cold places. I don't know. Um, but, however, also during this time, since Europeans were doing a colonialism, uh, we had to find a way to justify it. Because if you didn't know, colonialism is fucking horrific. Uh, which pushed the idea for rail which pushed the idea for racial categorizations and hierarchy to justify what we in leftist circles would call a hate crime. Uh, like in the Spanish colonies in Latin America, a racial hierarchy was created 
with white Spaniards at the top and everyone else, including African, Native American, Jewish, and Morisco, uh, people who used to be Muslim, being formally excluded from holding any kind of political, military, or economic power, or any kind of symbols of power, including jewelry or wearing gold. And in the British colonies, terms like Christian, free, English, and white were all interchangeable and proxies for each other, which also is where we get in the modern day, by the way. Now, as you can imagine, by the 18th century, this doesn't exactly improve. By this time, in addition to physical features, moral behavioral traits begin to be added to the distinctions of race, which is obviously wrong. I, I felt like I had to put that on my script because I there's gonna be there there's people that would look at like my script so far and be like this man is clearly a racist, but oh, Jesus Christ. Um but a lot of European scientists became incredibly interested in categorizing races and pushing the idea that every race has innate and unchangeable traits. Yikes. But one of these scientists, Carl Linnaeus, proposes a taxonomy of humans in 1758 by introducing the classification Homo sapien europaeus, uh-oh, and then adding three other divisions, writing them as objective classifications, but as you can imagine, filled to the fucking boy holes with racist stereotypes. And I don't just mean the butthole, I mean all of them. Uh, in the end, his classifications were Europeans, Americans, Asians, and Africans. Which, that's also a very, uh, very small, <laughs> very small list. Uh, following in, here I am judging races for not having enough races. Um... Following in 1779, Johann Frederick Blumenbach, and holy fuck is that a troublingly German name for this period of time, divided humanity into five different races based off of the skull shapes of sample skulls. However, he doesn't name them until 1793, which is a sign that you're on the right track when it takes 14 fucking years to confirm your theory. And this resulted in the races of Caucasian being white, Middle Eastern, and South Asian, Mongolians being East Asians, Malayan, which is Southeast Asian, and Pacific Islander, Ethiopian being Black and Sub-Saharan African, and American being Native Americans. And see, he argued that skull shape, fucking phrenology, skin color, hair, etc. are dependent on geography, nutrition, and your cultural customs. The, you know, if you're seeing some modern racist shit in there, yeah, that, that's where it comes from. However, Johann Frederick Blumenbach uh, didn't necessarily mean all of this to be necessarily negative. However, he did also say that clearly white people were number one and were the original human race and that every other race is descended from a mix of poor nutrition and getting fucked up by the environment. So, yes, he was still extremely racist, even though he didn't think he was saying something that was fucked up. And now we get to the 19th and 20th century. There, this time, race, quote-unquote, scientists begin to divide Caucasian. Why? Well, because it was defined by the Caucasus Mountains to the north of Georgia and Eastern Europe. But this would include Europeans, Arabic people, North Africans, Indians, Slavs, and Turks. But obviously, Europeans really didn't fucking like that. So, in 1870, 
Thomas Henry Huxley sees this and decides that Caucasian only means European. And in 1920, Lothrop Stoddard with a white nationalist scientist, which you're going to say, uh-oh, you're right, um, also includes parts of North Africa and the Middle East, but only kinda. Specifically, the white parts. But others also subdivide during the mid-1800s, including between dark and light white, with Mediterranean and North African people being considered dark white, and Northern Europeans being light white. Um, also, sometimes they'd be called swarthy. Uh, also during the mid-1800s, Louise Agassiz, Agassiz nuts, uh, becomes a prolific writer of scientific racist smut. And what I mean by that is, like, imagine all the tags on whatever website you use to read the dojin of racism. All of them. All the fucking tags. Every tag. But he believed in something that was popular at the time, called polygenism. That races came from separate and distinct origins, and that they were assigned different and unequal attributes and were separated into different parts of the world because Jesus thinks it's funny when a hate crime happens. But his delineations were Western American temperate, Eastern American temperate, tropical Asiatic, temperate Asiatic, South American temperate, New Holland, aka Australia, Arctic, Cape of Good Hope, and American tropical. And the thing is, is that those were how they were written. I don't think he wrote European down. Uh, unless he did, and the sources that I used were not including that. Uh, but anyways, he also didn't believe in evolution or shared ancestry between humans in any way. And instead, believed that God put them where he wanted them. Which also means... How the fuck does he explain chattel slavery? Uh, and he and... And he and an absolute racist goober named Arthur de Gobineau, uh, who looks exactly how you think he would, believe that mixing races would lead to chaos. Also, Arthur was a diplomat, not a scientist, and also believed that Aryans were a thing that existed, and that the reason why white people were in decline, don't know what time he thought he was fucking alive, but okay, was because of race mixing. And, uh, but I think all this proves is that White dudes uh, throughout history don't have to be smart for people to like their ideas. They just have to, like, pretend like they know things. Now, in 1870, our old uh, acquaintance, Thomas Huxley, publishes on the geographical distribution of the chief modifications of mankind, where he absolutely, 100%, empirically, with no bias whatsoever, map the distribution of the races of human. Oh, but he did exclude the Horn of Africa and the entire fucking continent of India because they were too complicated for him. What a what a fucking genius. An absolute just the 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 most complex thought process you've ever seen out of a fucking human being. Jesus Christ. Uh, however, like Darwin believed he believed that humans were still the same species and that these were morphological variations and that, to some extent, we should have abolition. Now, before you start throwing parades and teaching children in grade school that he was the best boy ever, like George Washington, 
he was still a flaming fucking racist. And no, I don't mean in the way that I think neo-Nazis should be set on fire and burned at the stake like a witch. Uh, also, we should try to keep him alive as long as possible, so... Yeah. Uh, but he believed in a hierarchy of races based on innate abilities. However, speaking of Darwin, one year after that, he publishes The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And before you get too scared, don't worry. Darwin was as close as you get to an anti-racist at the time, which, by the modern standards, is still kind of racist. Well, not kind of. Still pretty racist, but still. See, he was raised as a staunch abolitionist and was usually disgusted or horrified by both chattel slavery and racism he saw during his travels. But this work was published to disprove the racial hierarchy by using his own theory of evolution that basically were all the same species, and the difference in how humans look is from cultural beauty standards and environmental adaptations. He did also say that humans take out the appearance of their mothers. I'm not sure what all that is about, but oh, please God, don't let him talk to Freud. Now, there's another character to talk about in the story, but it's important to set up something about him first. So, Julian Huxley, uh, no relation as far as I know, was an evolutionary biologist that in 1924 took a trip to the U.S. from England. And when he came back, he brought back with him some things he'd quote-unquote learned, including drastic and extreme racial differences between black and white people, and that the more black tone was, the worse they were. Like in all regards. And Jesus Christ. It, it wouldn't surprise me if he brought back some good old-fashioned syphilis, too. But he proposed that English, that England engage in the same thing that the U.S. was. Yeah, you know, the racial inequality and segregation. Um, and that's the setup. That's the setup to who he is. See, as he aged and became less stupid, his beliefs became more liberal, and by the mid-1930s, he had become, again, as close as you can to being anti-racist for the time period. And he, alongside others of other scientists, publicly came out to fight against the Nazi ideas of race to justify political action that was rapidly on the rise in Germany. And in 1935, he and another scientist, A.C. Haddon, published We Europeans, a survey of racial problems, which concluded that looking at genetics only gives a highly limited and superficial definition of race. But they still believed there were clear racial differences, just not enough to you know, make political policy. Uh, and this was supported by Races of Mankind by Ruth Benedict and Jean Weltfish that said in their paper that race didn't justify politics regardless of how extreme the difference is. They, too, also did believe in extreme differences. See, here's the thing. Anti-racists used to mean, like, I don't want to kill all of this race. I just think they're different from us. You know, like, anti-racists used to, like, really, really have a low bar for entry. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I lost my place because I decided to, to look at the at the uh, audio pitch when I said that instead of staring at my script. Um, however, some people also decided to fight fire with fire. Uh, like in 1939, Charlton Kuhn publishes The Races of Europe, which concluded the following. First, Caucasians come from Mediterraneans and Upper Paleolithics. You know, Neanderthals and humans getting their fuck on. Upper Paleolithics on the indigenous people of Europe. Therefore, Mediterraneans invade Europe during the Neolithic. 
Therefore, the racial makeup of Europe is a mixture of the two, and therefore, they create a hybrid that encompasses all of Europe, Central Asia, South Asia, and the Near East, North Africa, and the Horn of Africa, and therefore, the Nordic races the Nazis idolized as being the pure white race are actually Mediterraneans, and therefore, aren't actually pure white. See what I mean by fighting fire with fire? It's like not saying there's not enough of a difference to justify anything. It's basically saying, even assuming you're right, you're still an asshole and you're wrong. Of course, we know none of this stops the Nazis because white supremacists are brain broken. And the Nazis, once they took power, began to put their beliefs into practice. Not only Northern Europeans being on top of the hierarchy and also being the only real humans and calling everyone else either subhuman or entirely inhuman, they also began to eliminate everyone that wasn't Northern European and everyone who was was forced into a system of eugenics. You know, including the Shoah, genocides and massacres during the war, and other atrocities committed on people. And all of this thrust anti-Semitism and white supremacy to the front of everyone's mind and simultaneously called it the inhuman enemy. Now, what this did, besides driving white supremacists underground and making them a lot easier to hate, was it also really killed it in science. See, a lot of scientists have been coming to realize that race science is bunk, and now, seeing the consequences of a scientific justification of racism, they begin to fight against and distance themselves from race science. I mean, kind of, eugenics still sticks around, and there's a lot of pseudoscience that exists to this day focused on racism. Uh... But also, in 1945, after the founding of UNESCO, a United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization that is meant to promote world peace and fight against the rise of things like fascism, they began research into the biology of race. And by 1950, they, can, they had found that there is no connection to how people look in any kind of biological race. However, as we've seen again and again, Unfortunately, racism and white supremacy comes back. Or if you know how it actually works, it never left. For example, in 1962, Charles Kuhn, the motherfucker, is back at it again and publishes The Origin of Races, which is a staunchly polygenist and is also pseudoscientific to the fucking gills. And also since World War II across the world, both holdouts and idolizers of Nazis and other white supremacists across Europe have consistently popped up across time. And by the mid-2000s, we've seen a massive rise in prominence in all-right white supremacist groups in both Europe and the U.S. But, speaking of the U.S., let's jump over that timeline. See, starting in the early 1700s... Starting in the early 1700s. See, since the beginning of the American colonies, we've been steeped in racism. Because the Americas were colonized by Europeans at a time when Europeans believed in racial science. And when, we started to, and when we started to set up the foundations of many of our institutions, who did that? Well, the wealthy intellectuals that were in charge. The same people that believed in racial science. So America, as a nation, has never been without a heavy focus on race. Because our foundations of basically our entire economy, legal system, military, medical system, and government favors white people and treats every other race as lesser than. Now, during the lead-up to the revolution, we already had quite a bit of advocacy for abolition. And one of the key things pointed to was the 1773 collection of poems 
written by Phyllis Wheatley called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, which was quite popular and was also the first book published by an African-American woman. And why was this pointed to? Well, because of the beliefs at the time, it was believed only white people could be intellectual, which was a justification for slavery. Of course, this advocacy was done in the most condescending ways possible, but still, it was advocating for the rights of black people. So, And in 1785, something I've still seen white supremacists cite is written by Thomas fucking Jefferson. Now, if you didn't know this already, old Tommy Boy was a real piece of shit, and not like the normal president piece of shit. Thomas Jefferson advocated for keeping slavery, seeing as a necessary evil, and also that white people are doing black people a favor by by generationally enslaving them with no rights, privileges, or even consideration as a human being. He also, in the same writing, provided dozens of excuses for slavery which are still in use today and also insulted Wheatley's work and said she wasn't a poet because she's black. What the fuck? Okay, but now while a lot of people will point to him uh, freeing ten slaves and recommending the freedom of six more as him not being racist, remember, he had over 600 slaves. And also, he for sure raped one of them continuously and likely raped others. So again, Huge piece of shit. And he had a hand of one of our founding politicians in the 1790 Naturalization Act, which limited citizenship to only white people, particularly white men. And this excluded not only other races, but also, in, but also excluded indentured servants. Meaning that for over a century, the only people in America that could hold office or have government jobs were middle to upper class white men. Two years later, Benjamin Banneker, a black naturalist and mathematician, writes his almanac, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Almanac and Ephemers, and published it. Now, mind you, this is a massive area, and this almanac was praise of the time, and as far as I can tell, even to today, for its level of detail and accuracy. And seeing as Jefferson was alive, and he could straight up write the president letters and know where the motherfucker lived, Banneker sent a letter to Jefferson with his book, with the following written in it. Quote, I apprehend you will embrace every opportunity to eradicate that train of absurd and false ideas and opinions. End quote. And if you're unfamiliar with American English in this era, that means, hey, how about you go fuck yourself in the mouth and eat shit, Tommy? However, despite this, slavery continues to be a booming business until it isn't in the North anymore, and there are pushes to end it. And while in the modern day we often assume it was simply a moral thing, the truth was that the abolitionist movement was fairly small, and the primary reason the North started pushing to end slavery was economic. In the South, however, the economic investment in slavery grew to a point of having around 4 million slaves by 1840. And this division in economic style slammed together with cultural differences and also political differences to cause the animosity between America's ball chin and America's swampily dangle and wang until the Civil War happened. And yes, morality was a huge part of it and became a bigger and bigger deal as we got closer to the war and into the war, but the animosity really began with rich people being angry that other rich people disagree on how they want to be rich. 
which, I mean, one, that's very American, but also, holy fuck, why can't we get anything done unless the rich already wanted it? I mean, I know the answer to that, but, like, fuck me, I wish it wasn't that so depressing. But, in the aftermath of the Civil War, we have our first official hate group in the U.S. that isn't the government. So, imagine, if you will, you just burned down everything from the Mississippi River to the ocean, told all the people you were just fighting, hey, we call them people now, about a group of humans they consider property, did nothing about the socioeconomic or cultural reasons for their rage against minorities, and then didn't disarm them. What would you think would happen? And if you said nothing, or I don't care, fuck them, you'd fit right in with the government. Because they do nothing, and what occurs is a bunch of pissy racist southerners filled with battlefield experience in the Civil War get together and form a group you've probably heard of. The Ku Klux Klan. Their name coming from Kyklos, which means circle in ancient Greek. And if you're trying to figure out the connection, it's literally because a ton of boys clubs at the time used that word in their names. But at the time, the KKK wasn't what you think of it as now, with the whole putting a burning cross in the yard and rolling up and beat a pickup truck. I mean, first of all, they didn't have pickups yet, but also because they were acting as insurgents. They were continuing the Civil War. They'd basically jump out from nowhere and try to assassinate people that aren't racist scumbags or bomb black people's houses and then disappear into the night. I mean, luckily, by 1871, the first KKK dissolves as the federal government labels them terrorists and basically declares open season on ghost club attendees. In addition, a lot of private citizens get tired of dealing with them and so they start fight back, both white and black people. And this one-two punch of the feds and armed and angry southerners caused the group to collapse. Especially after their leader, Nathan Bedford Forrest, calls for them to disband. Since, you know, it was getting kind of scary to be racist in the South for the first time and only time in history. But white supremacy wasn't just on the fringes in the minds of enemies of the state. No, the state itself was also racist as fuck. See, as the Civil War ended, and America turns its attention to the rest of the continent, much to the terror of Mexicans and Native Americans alike, we decided that actually, we should own all of this. This, if you know American history, was called Manifest Destiny. The idea that God granted the entire continent to the Americans, as long as we went out and took it, and by God, we were gonna take it. You know, which if you remember those dog whistles from earlier, and also that at the time, white and Christian were interchangeable terms, then you're unfortunately not surprised. Which is also why we weren't stealing Canadian land, because most of the ones we, that we liked were considered white. And towards the end of Manifest Destiny in 1890, the author L. Frank Baum wrote the following, quote, The whites, by right of conquest, by justice of civilization, are masters of the American continent, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. End quote. Holy fuck! However, also at the end of the 1800s, we do see some positive changes. Namely, the career of Franz Boas, a German-American anthropologist that defined anthropology as we know it today and is known as the father of American anthropology. While working at Columbia University from 1899 to 1920, he worked to change the biases and assumptions of the field by shifting the focus away from race and towards culture. 
He also stressed that humans are essentially biologically the same, and we should be focusing on the actual determinants of much of our development and history and culture, environment and and culture. I need to stop ad-libbing sometimes. Um, and by 1920, he had shifted his thinking entirely to race being socially constructed and basically just fucking ignored it. Well, not really. Anthrop- anthropologists still pay attention to race, but more in the sense of like, well, what does this culture think actually exists out there? Uh, of course, being American for every step forward, we take 88 back, uh, because while this change is happening as intellectual fields, the second KKK is founded in 1915, following the release of the movie The Birth of a Nation. And while I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this movie before, it was a movie about how black people were working for the Union to undermine the South, uh, and the South being the good guys in this case, and do bad things to white women, and the thing that stopped them was the Klan, who were depicted as knights. And this white supremacist glorifying hunk of shit was Woodrow Wilson's favorite fucking movie, and he was a goddamn president. He was also, uh, I, I don't want to say this about, like, someone who, like, didn't necessarily want to fight in World War One. He was also kind of a pussy. Because, like, he didn't want to fight in World War One because he was a pacifist. Totally fine with Birth of a Nation and the Ku Klux Klan existing. But did not want to fight in World War One because he didn't want to spill blood. Um, and then also at the Treaty of Versailles, he was, like, standing at the edge of the room. And, like, other dignitaries were like, who the fuck is this guy? Anyways, <laughs> uh, fuck Woodrow Wilson. Get fucked, nerd. Um, <laughs> uh, and the second clan is massively popular, likely because of the movie, and they gain massive membership quickly and are back on their bullshit even quicker. They were also helped along by urbanization, a general sense of hopelessness, uh, factory jobs, and perceived threats like the Catholics. And this era of the Klan is also where they get a lot of their traditions and costumes. Luckily, though, by 1944, the second Klan was basically dead. Why? Well, for a few reasons. Firstly, World War II. With the hatred of white supremacy being virtue-signaled worldwide and being more aligned to the Nazis than America, the Klan couldn't survive. However, it was also killed off by the IRS just motherfucking their face. Which I always love it when the IRS is the, is the reason why a terrible hate group goes down. Um, groups they claimed to be protecting, like Protestants and also some women's groups, uh, calling them out for being racist pieces of shit, and also being infiltrated by the likes of Stetson Kennedy, whose efforts not only expose them and who their members are, but also villainizes them and trivializes their rituals and secrets. But, even as we kill them off, another generation of the clan was born. Throughout the 1950s, the third clan rises as many different leaders of old chapters try to reinvigorate it. However, as the U.S. had started taking them seriously, a lot of their membership was constantly getting killed or arrested or both. Which, hey, deserved. But, because of this, the people that remained were the most violent and racist of them all. However, these groups never really united, and instead became largely independent terrorist cells. And during this time in the civil rights movement, they were responsible for hundreds of murders and bombings, including all of the following. The 1951 Christmas Eve bombing, 
the murder of Willie Edwards Jr., the assassination of Medgar Evers of the NAACP, uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, which killed uh, six children, the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Sockswerner, who were civil rights workers, the murder of Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore, the, ver- the murder of Viola Liuzzo, firebombing of Vernon Dahmer Sr., the murder of Clarence Triggs, and the 1967 bombing of, Ma- of Jackson, Mississippi. But people were fighting back against them, like W. Horace Carter and Willard Cole, who shared a Pulitzer Prize for public service in 1953 for their efforts against the Klan, or the 1958 Battle of Hayes Pond. The Battle of Hayes Pond was the time that the Klan threatened a couple of Lumbee Native Americans and then went to their gathering, where they were then surrounded by hundreds of armed Lumbee and were either all routed or killed, which deserved, also, I think that's how we should treat all of them. And a group of white supremacists comes up and like threatens one of your one of your friends. Uh, gather a posse of a couple hundred people and just fucking gun them down. Anyways, uh, at the same time, we have the beginning of the civil rights movement with the founding of the NAACP and a fuck ton of murders of black people going entirely unpunished, which galvanized a ton of support and push for civil rights. And in 1955, after supposedly whistling in the general direction of a white woman. Uh, Emmett Till, a fucking 14-year-old, is kidnapped, tortured, and lynched by two white men, one of which was the woman's husband and the other was uh, her brother-in-law, who were acquitted despite a mountain of evidence against them. And the images of his body and his his casket served to galvanize the civil rights movement, get a fuck-ton of white people involved, um, and kick-starts it hard. And only a hundred days later, Rosa Parks enters the movement when she refuses to give up her bus seat and she is subsequently arrested because white people have always been the most sensitive motherfuckers to ever exist. And despite actions of the Klan and other racists, the civil rights movement is successful. Some might even say because of their actions. Uh, in the sense that, like, basically the clan and other races basically just fucking killing people on live TV made a whole bunch of suburban white people go, holy shit! And then they uh, called their congressman and told them, like, you better fucking fix this shit right now, or I swear to God, I'm gonna I'm gonna find a way to break your kneecaps. Um, but, look, it wasn't this is not like a white savior thing. I'm not trying to like justify shit. Um, but the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, and the Immigration and Nationality Act passed in 1965. And if you've never heard of the Immigration and Nationality Act, well, this removed the immigration maximums that were in place for everywhere but Northern Europe. Yeah, that was a thing that we had for hundreds of years. I didn't even know that we had that until I did research for this fucking episode. But also in 1965, with all the shit that the Civil Rights Movement revealed, the House Un-American Activities Committee started an investigation into the KKK. And if you remember them, those are the ones that went after the commies. And then with uh, Loving v. Virginia in 1967, 
the ban on interracial marriage is finally ended by the Supreme Court. And for most of us that went through K-12, this is where racism ended forever, and we never had a problem ever again. However, for those of us that then started living in the real world, things continued to be just as bad, if not worse. Because, see, all this attention just made the white supremacy sneakier, and also gave the government an excuse to pretend like they were the good guys, so we, in this case I mean white people, ignore their systemic and structural racism. In the 70s and 80s, the Klan also jumps to their height of open power, performing their murders and bombings out in the open. Also, due to being more decentralized, the white supremacy vacuum allows for other white supremacist groups to rise. And white supremacy also divides into two camps of, you know, divide and conquer. The first is focused on the white part of WASP, they're trying to quote-unquote protect, and being focused on making America a white nation. The other camp is focused on the Protestant part of WASP, and becomes a fundamentalist Christian movement that worked to associate white and Christian. And while a lot of work was done during this time against fringe groups, the government was still in its 1780s bullshit, and it still is. Also, if you'll notice, white fundamentalist Christian white nation, what are the two things the current fucking Republican Party is running on, and has been running on for over a fucking decade? Yeah. 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 If you're in your car right now, and that just clicked in your brain, and you need to pull over the side of the road to, to like, reconsider your whole life, yeah. That's where it fucking comes from. You would think this is a new thing? This isn't a new thing. It's been around since the 80s. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Also, in 1995, Stormfront, a white supremacist website, is founded in part by the ex-wife of David Duke. You know, a clan grand dragon that, for some reason, wasn't fucking assassinated. Which I'm not saying he should be assassinated. Actually, is he still alive? Is David Duke still alive? He's still fucking alive. Wait. No, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, he died a while ago. <laughs> Anyways, good. I'm glad he's fucking dead. Um, but with that, we're actually going to jump out of the timeline. Celebrating a man's death. Because he fucking deserved it. He should have been beaten to death. Uh, because there's a lot more white supremacy going on in the U.S., believe me, but as you can probably tell, I'm already pretty angry. So let's let's go over. Okay, so we're going to start with some current data for white supremacy. So beginning with how many hate groups there are in general in the U.S., there are 1,221 in total. And of that, 733 are hate groups. Which is down from previous years, but this actually isn't a good thing. Why? Well, because the theory as to why there's fewer isn't because they're dying in large numbers, as they should be, or are suddenly developing a personality and aren't racist anymore, but because they very well might be uniting and reorganizing under other groups. Like the Proud Boys, that had 43 chapters in 2020 and 72 in 2021 which is a 60% increase in one year. 
Now, assumedly, this isn't consistent, especially because there's apparently more undercover feds in the Proud Boys than there are CIA agents in South America, but if this was consistent, then that would mean that right now there are 184 chapters. And with the case of white supremacy violence, it's been happening more often, but with fewer casualties overall. Out of 336 reported incidents of white supremacist violence in 2019, there was a total of 165 deaths. However, this has been on the rise as white supremacist mass shooters have been more and more common, and they are often supported by and inspired by each other. In 2021, there were 19 incidents of extremist violence with a total of 29 casualties. And while this is down overall since 2012, those are up from the 2020 numbers of 23 deaths. Uh, 26 of those deaths are white supremacist shootings, two were black nationalists, and one was an Islamic extremist. And most of these, 24, was done with guns. Which, uh, yeah, pretty fucking weird The people who are one pubic hair's width away from a hate crime, a kind of crazy that is very difficult to hide, are able to get guns, right? Go back to episode two. So, let's look at the last decade before we move on to address this and some other opinions. So, between 2020, so between 2012 and 2021, there was a total of 443 deaths by extremists. 75% of them were right-wing extremists, uh, 4% were left-wing, 20% were Islamic extremists, and 1% were other ideologies. Now, these are death tolls and not number of killers, just to be clear. So, of the 333 right-wing extremists, 73% of them were done by white supremacists, 18% of them were done by anti-government people, 5% were incels, and the other three were a different kind of extremists, which... How many fucking kinds of right-wing extremists are there? I think they already covered the main three. So focusing down on the white supremacists, 16% of these deaths were caused by alt-right supremacists, 6% from neo-Nazi or traditional white supremacist groups, uh, 9% were killed by skinheads, 31... Oh, wait, 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 wrong number. 9% were not killed by skinheads. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 9% were killed by skinheads, 31% by uh, racist prison gangs, and 31% were from unaffiliated white supremacist groups. So, to be clear from these stats, 333 deaths by extremism in the last decade in the U.S. was done by right-wing extremists. And 243 of these deaths were done by white supremacists, or just about 55% of all the deaths totaled. And to compare to Islamic terrorists, something we've been conditioned to be sensitive to in the U.S., had a total of, ironically, 88 deaths. So with that knowledge, why are we doing anything about it? Well, hopefully you've been paying close attention, because the truth is our nation has been built on white supremacist rhetoric since its literal inception, and the idea of persecuting and taking white supremacy seriously feels like anathema to how America has been operating since the beginning. But, if we were to actually do something about it, what would we do? Well, first... We should be prioritizing prevention and countering. And preventing white supremacy, assuming you don't want to dismantle the entire government and restart, is best done through education. 
by teaching people the history of white supremacy in the U.S. and educating them on the very real racism that has pervaded it since the beginning, and also what a lot of the terminology is, uh, you can save at least a good amount of people from becoming white supremacists, or at the very least active white supremacists. The rest of them are dummies that are going to fall for it anyways, because people that have all the resources to oppose racism and chose not to are dumb are dumb, and they use intellectualism to hide their racism. You know, like Jordan Peterson, for example. But secondly, we got to actually put resources into addressing this threat, because we don't, and white supremacy is, hopefully, as you can fucking see from both the actual numbers and also the morality of the situation, is an actual threat. Now, we also need to put our money where our mouth is and remove extremists from positions of power. In this context, it would be government and government work. This means everything from the police to the president. And of course, we also got to treat the war on white supremacy in the same way we treat the war on Islamic terror. Because white supremacy is terrorism. So the thought that we know the identities, faces, and homes of clan members, and they aren't dead or in Guantanamo Bay, is ridiculous. And I'm not advocating for you to kill a white supremacist. I'm saying is that the CIA should be doing their fucking job and doing some murder. Although I guess they're busy destabilizing South America and the Middle East again, like it's the 1980s, but whatever. And finally, we gotta work to try and ban and isolate white supremacists from the internet. Because a big part of white supremacy is community building to, you know, do a hate crime with, and also to support them being an asshole. You know, because a white supremacist on their own is never brave. So if you remove a vector for community building, suddenly you have a lot of people who would otherwise become white supremacist extremists that would do things like kill a bunch of school children or instead being lonely little bitches jerking off in their room until they die. Now, I don't mean like on normal sites, but those two. But I also mean the removal of sites like Stormfront, uh, and if you ask my personal opinion, Breitbart, uh, and scouring places like 4chan for white supremacy. Which I know at this point would like quarter the traffic on the site, but like, come on, guys, isn't that much of a sacrifice? Okay, let's ask people's opinions. So, firstly, have we made good progress in the last 50 years? Well, according to men in the US, 56% think that we've made a lot of progress, and 40% of women also think we've made a lot of progress. And breaking it down racially, 38% of Hispanic people and 44% of Asian people believe we've made a lot of progress as well. However, when you look at white and black, you see the real contention here. 56% of black people think we've made good progress, and 19% of black people agree. And of that, also 64% of black people think that we have made a little progress. And I gotta say, seeing as you know, black people tend to be the ones most affected by racism than, uh, you know, white people, I'm going to say they're right. Now, also, college graduates are very likely to agree that we've made a lot of progress, with around 52% of them saying that. But finally, on politics, 79% of conservatives think we've made good progress, and 25% of lefties agree with that. And, and I'm in the camp of most lefties here. We really have not changed much. But, you know, of those that say that we still have a lot to do, it's 55% women, 78% black people, 56% postgraduates, and 80% leftists are on that side. I mean, this is compared to 45% of men, 
42% white people, 47% of high school or lower grads, and 16% of conservatives agree that we don't agree that we still have a lot to do. Which again, I cannot imagine being presented with all this information and being like, oh yeah, yeah, this is exactly how it's supposed to work. But to round this out, let's look at uh, something white supremacists claim to do. See, they claim to protect the sanctity of whiteness, which, again, as we've seen, is dumb because the definition of white keeps changing, and their argument is that being white is important. That's their whole argument. And declaring that you're white on censuses is down 22% since 1980, which is 40 fucking years. And at this rate, assuming that that stays consistent, white will be entirely gone in the United States in about 100 years which is longer than the lifespan of this country as things stand. But also, who cares? Well, racially, 62% of white people, 55% of black people, 62% of Hispanic people, 59% of Asian people don't give a single fuck. Age-wise, it's similar. 18 to 29-year-olds don't care 57% of the time. 62% of the time for 30 to 49-year-olds 63% 63% of the time for 50 to 64 year olds and 61% of 65 year olds uh, 65 plus year olds don't give a single fuck. And which way do young people care? Mostly in the well good sense with 29% of people on the age bracket happy the whiteness is on the decline. And I gotta say I don't give much of a shit but I'm pretty close to that because I fuck it who cares and it pisses off racists to say that. Okay, and finally, we have politically. 58% of conservatives, 50, uh, 65% of right moderates, 63% of left moderates, and 60% of leftists just can't be fucked to care either. You know, honestly, I think this is a good place to call it. You know, people not giving a shit about the primary argument of white supremacists. So, to the soapbox. Oh boy, time to get cancelled. Okay, so before coming into this, I obviously knew white supremacy was bad and that white people were pretty fucking cringe. And I can say that because I'm white. But, you know, after hearing the idea that white doesn't exist, I knew I had to research that. And that led me to this episode. And after doing that, I gotta say, I agree. Because whiteness, since it's become attached to race, is about exclusivity. It's not about categorizing a group of people. It's built on this weird institutionalized claim that Europeans are better than any other race in the world. And white represents that. It's not a real racial delineation because the people that use it they use it are the ones saying, well, it means the Europeans I like, which changes from person to person. And that being said, I am frustrated that I had to research white supremacy to understand that. Would very much love it if us fucking lefties explained things every so often instead of just Saying something that sounds inflammatory when you don't explain it. I, I I do want to go off on that for a second. Guys, my my fellow leftists, I mean, first of all, we need to start working together a lot more often. We can't just like keep constantly fucking turning each other down like a bunch of assholes. Also, can we like can we just agree right now that when we say something that sounds inflammatory to a normal person that we explain what we mean? Please? Like, that would be that would be excellent. Thank you. Okay, but anyways, now that I've done the research, I I feel no sympathy for for white supremacists. 
you know, while in the past I'd probably do the whole bleeding heart, everyone can be saved thing. There's no excuse. Nowadays, if you're not even going to put in the legwork to try and understand race in the country you live in, and have a complete lack of self-awareness to understand that your specific skin tone is the only group of people that are humans, I don't even feel a hint of sympathy for you. The knowledge and the truth is out there, and so incredibly easy to find. I mean, also, if you've made it this far, you have the basics. You understand what white privilege is, what white fragility is. You know that the U.S. is founded during a time where intellectuals were racist by intellectuals. So I hope you understand when I say that open white supremacists should be treated like the terrorists they want to be. Meaning, we kill them. And by we, I mean the U.S. I'm not advocating for you to go on killing spree, you fucking loon. I'm telling you that the government kills them, or white supremacists get killed by private citizens, completely separate from the things I am saying right now, my reaction will be, good, they deserve it. And if your response isn't the same, I don't know how to take it. Because on one hand, I think you're a lot more principled than I am, beyond truly believing everyone deserves a second, third, and fourth chance, or that violence is always wrong. But on the other hand, they're fucking Nazis. Let's not split hairs here. Evil is evil is evil. And foot, and foot soldiers of evil do deserve a chance to repent. Until they raise arms. If they decide to be open about this and get tatted up and go to rallies armed, I don't feel bad when they get themselves killed. They, they ask for it. Honestly, it should happen more often. I mean, fuck me, what do I know? My information isn't hard to find, and I live in a rural area, so I guess, uh... I'm just joking. Ha ha ha. The funny show where the fat gay leftist says things that he doesn't mean. Fuck out of here. Uh, I'm not retracting my statement if Ghost Club comes for me. Uh, don't make me put my money where my mouth is on this one, you fucks. Anyways, if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, your Nazi-punching fantasies, please, for the love of God, corrections and opinions from anyone who isn't white, please, I would love that. And really, anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd. I do basically the same thing with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc. Or I hope you like the topics just as much. And also remember to follow me on Twitter at waithat underscore pause for more episode announcements. Have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, white supremacists aren't protected by the Geneva Convention because animals don't get rights. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.